We're continuing Ephesians, and our passage this morning comes from chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Thank you so much, Ashley, for uh, reading God's Word for us. And uh, I want to let you guys know that a few years ago, I made a really, really bad decision. I'm going to tell you what it is. A friend of mine was turning 30, and his wife had what she thought was a brilliant idea to purchase a few hours at one of those trampoline parks for him and I to enjoy together. Uh, just to be clear, we didn't take our kids, like, there, it was just me and him, like, during workday hours, basically alone in this trampoline park. You've seen these before, right? Like, maybe if you're a parent, you've taken uh, kids just down to Sky Zone. It's like, I don't know, three minutes from here at Quivira and 67th. Uh, so you, you're aware of these, but has any of you spent three hours pretending that you are a child jumping in one of them, even though you very, very much are not, Right? Uh, or is that just me this morning, right? My buddy and I, we tried to dunk so many times in the dunk zone uh, that I've got a picture of the dunk zone. Like, this guy is pulling it off. This is not me or my friend. We were not, we were not pulling it off, right? And the reason why this was such a bad decision, you know why this was a bad decision, right? I woke up the next morning, and there were places on my body that were sore that I did not know existed. <laughs> It's like, I hadn't thought about that muscle in a while, but it's very, very sore, right? Like, this is why it was such a bad decision. As much fun as me and my friend had, it was a great idea. We really enjoyed ourselves. What I can definitively say is that our bodies did not need three hours jumping in a trampoline park as if we were, you know, 12 years old again. We didn't need that. We didn't need that as grown adults. But that is an interesting question to me. Maybe you think it is as well. The question of what do our bodies need? What do our bodies need? What do our bodies need? I made a list. This is my list. doesn't have to be your list, but I made a list of a few things 
that I think our bodies do need. Number one for me, more thoughtful exercise, less chaotic trampoline park jumping. That's at the top of my list. More water, less coffee. More sleep, less Netflix. More kale, less ice cream. And on and on and on, right? Like, this is a list of what my body needs. Maybe yours would be similar. Maybe it would be different. But, but we tend to forget how important our bodies are, don't we? We tend to forget how important our bodies are, especially if our bodies are working well. We, we tend to actually rarely even think about them. Now, others of you know better, right? I know that there are many in the room right now who suffer from chronic illness, who suffer from chronic pain. That's actually a central part of my dad's story, um, David, and so I've gotten to journey alongside very close to someone who's had a chronic uh, illness for the past 20, 25 years. Uh, and if that describes you, right, then you know better than, than maybe the rest of us, where we don't think about our bodies all that much. And if that describes you, just know that we see you. We're praying for you, proactively praying for any in our body who might struggle with their body in an enduring way. We see you, we're here for you, we want to pray for you. But I do think others of us, we, we can tend to forget how important our bodies are. And, and the truth is, church, that our bodies matter. Our physical bodies matter. We ought to think about them more than we do. We ought to care about them more than we do because God cares about them. Whether we like it or not, it's true, our physical bodies matter. But it's not just our physical bodies that matter. These things, right, that we walk around all day in, these deeply matter. They're significant, but they're not the only type of body that matters, right? Track with me on this. We, the followers of Jesus, we are called, who are we called? We're called the body, the body of Christ. Jesus is our head and the rest of us, we make up his various bodies of parts and, and then collectively, we, the body parts and Christ, our head, we are the body of Christ in this world. This is an incredible reality. It's probably one that you've heard before, but the stuff that you've heard before, what, what is it in danger of doing? Sort of going in one ear and out the other, right? You're like, oh yeah, the body of Christ, I've got that thing down. I understand that. Do we? Do we? This is an incredible reality, and we overlook it or we allow it to go in one ear and out the other only to our detriment and harm because this is one of the central metaphors in the Apostle Paul's writings to describe the church, to describe the people of God. This is all over his letters in the New Testament, including in the book of Ephesians, including in the passage that Ashley just read for us. We've been journeying through the book of Ephesians in our fall teaching series, Reconstructing Faith. And this morning, we are, as you heard, starting chapter 4, and there's a, there's a big pivot at the beginning of chapter 4. You can turn there if you haven't already. We're at the halfway point about of the book of Ephesians, and there's a clear transition here in these verses from the Apostle Paul. You see, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are primarily full of indicatives, indicatives. As in, Paul is describing church, this is who we are now, as God's people in Jesus, but chapters 4 through 6 are primarily full of imperatives, imperatives, meaning Paul's saying church as a result of who we are, the indicatives, this is how we should now live in Jesus Christ. So chapters 1 through 3 are the indicatives, this is who we are. Chapters 4 through 6 are the imperatives, this is what we do and how we live in light of who we are. Indicative, chapters 1 through 3. Imperatives chapters 4 through 6. And Paul begins 
this vital turn and transition in the book of Ephesians in reminding us of a vital truth. And it may sound basic to you. This may seem like, well, no, duh, but we have to start here. The body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. The body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get a book deal with that idea, right? It's too straightforward. It's almost too bland. It's too basic. And yet, can we be honest and admit that this is where we need to start? Let me, let me ask it this way, right? How often have you in your life and interactions with the body of Christ, how often have you observed the body of Christ not looking like Jesus? How often have you observed the body of Christ not looking like Jesus? And I bet you're thinking right now, like, too often. More often than should be true. That's my answer, which is why we need to start here. The body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. And this is like need number one, right? Like whatever your physical body's top need is, whatever my physical body's top need is, the body of Christ's top need is that we need to look like Jesus. That's at the top of the list. But it's not the only thing on the list. So when we ask the question, what does the body of Christ need, there's some other answers. Answer number one needs to look like Jesus, but, but what else does the body of Christ need? And thankfully, this passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, Paul actually, he describes various other needs that are on that list, various other needs that answer the question, what does the body of Christ need? And he actually, this is what I love about Paul, he doesn't leave us hanging. He describes the needs, and then he provides a pathway. He describes a pathway that we can journey on, that we can take a walk on together to meet these needs, to get to the place where we are meeting these needs. And, and there's going to be three of them that we'll look at, and what we'll notice is that if we're meeting and when we're meeting the needs that we're about to explore in a moment, if we're doing this, then guess what happens? We look a lot like Jesus. If we meet these other needs, then the top need on our list, that the body of Christ must look like Jesus, is also met. So here it is, the first one. The body of Christ needs oneness. What does the body of Christ need? It needs oneness. Oneness. I'm sure you caught, as Ashley read, how thickly present the idea of unity was in the first six verses of this passage, but I want to look at it again. Verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore... Paul writing, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here it is. Do you see it? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I love this. Verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You all see where I got the word oneness, didn't you? Did you catch it with me? Did you count along? There are seven instances of Paul using the word one. Do you want to hear it again without all of his asides? One body, kind of important to Paul. That's where he starts this list. That's why we're talking about it today. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one all, one God. 
one God and Father of all. So, I mean, right, over and over and over again, Paul is pointing us back to who we are, to the indicatives, remember. We are one in Jesus. We are one because of Jesus. And because of the oneness that we are, because of the oneness that we are, then what? Well, then he urges us to do what? He urges us to walk. That's the leading imperative in Ephesians 4.1. He urges us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Well, what's the calling? To be one, to be unified. The body of Christ needs oneness, and we need, he urges us, he commands us, he gives us the imperative of walking as one. We must walk as one. And maybe you've noticed it with me. I've noticed that this, the challenge of this here is one of the reasons why people have maybe deconstructed their faith. It's not the only reason. But folks are asking questions of the body. Questions like, why are there so many denominations? It's a good question. Why do people change churches so easily when things get hard? Why are some of the Christians I meet some of the meanest people that I come across in my life? Why do Christians fight and divide over politics or masks, right? I've seen people throw up their hands and deconstruct their faith because they see and experience Christians acting like a bunch of disconnected body parts lying all over the place. And they're justifiably disgusted by that. I mean, wouldn't you be disgusted if you just rolled up on disconnected body parts lying all over the place? That's not a body. That's a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> but, but can we be honest and be like, oh man, a lot of times the body of Christ, that's actually a lot more what we look like. And so people deconstruct. But it's interesting to me because Paul anticipates this. He doesn't excuse it. In fact, he openly acknowledges, this isn't Pollyanna, this isn't kumbaya stuff from the Apostle Paul, right? He knows that oneness, he knows that unity is hard work. And so again, he lays out, he's urging us to walk, and he says, here is the pathway that you can walk on towards oneness. So he, he gives us resources, he points us to resources because he knows how hard it's going to be. So here, before he even describes oneness in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, in verse 2, he actually lays out some character traits that we're going to need on this walk towards oneness. So look again at verse 2. I've got them highlighted. We're going to need some humility. Oh, I need an amen. We're going to need some humility. Amen. All right? That's not it. We need more than that. That'll get us going. But we need some gentleness. Yeah. You hear, you know what I want to do. We need some patience, and we need to bear with one another in love. Amen. Now, I love the, the end of this, bearing with one another in love, because one of my other all-time favorite verses from the Apostle Paul is Galatians 6.2, and in Galatians 6.2, he uses the word bearing, bearing with, but this is what he says in Galatians 6.2. He says, bearing the burdens, bearing with the burdens of other people. There's no, he's not talking about burdens here in Ephesians 4.2. What does that imply? Sometimes we are the burden that others in the body have to bear. You tracking with me on that, right? Like just, I want to, I'll, I'll be my, I'll, I'll say it this way. In my life, in my journey with Jesus, 
I can raise my hand and say, as I look back over it, I can recognize times and moments and even seasons where I was the burden that others in the body had to bear. And that seems to be what Paul is getting at here. Hey, oneness is important. Unity is important. Do you know what you're going to need? You're going to need the humility to admit that sometimes you or sometimes they within the body are going to be the burden that others have to bear. And as I look back over these moments, I have them in my head right now, and I have the specific people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who with generosity, with humility, with great patience, they bore with me in love as I was the burden. So that's my story and my experience. I won't say your story and your experience, but I, do, I find it fascinating. You're at Galatians 6, 2, bear the burdens of one another, and in doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 2, y'all, like, bear with one another. Sometimes we are a burden, and other people in the body have the calling to bear with us, to bear with us. Bearing with one another in love when, when some among us, when all among us at different points are going to be a burden, that is hard work. It's grueling work. It's messy and sweaty work. Like, you know what I mean? And, and humility and gentleness and patience, right? Do we have the humility to admit that that's true of us? Sometimes I've been a burden and others in the body have had to bear me. Do we have the gentleness? I love that word. Sometimes we're, we think too little of that word. Um, sometimes we think too, too little of that word, Right? gentleness, patience. And actually, track with me on this too. Who is Paul describing when he's listing off these character traits? Humility, gentleness, patience, the ability to bear with one another in love. He's describing Jesus, is he not? Think of who Jesus was on this earth as he walked Think of how humble Jesus was. Think of how gentle Jesus was. Think of how patient Jesus was. Think of how he was always willing to bear with anyone, everyone, anyone. Think of how loving, supremely loving Jesus was at all times and always. Paul is describing Jesus and inviting us and encouraging us and commanding us to walk as his body, right? Because the body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. And if we look like Jesus with humility, gentleness, patience, if we bear with one another in love, then we're on our way towards oneness and we're on our way towards looking like Jesus. I'm a little behind on this. I'm slowly making my way through the incredible book, Gentle and Lowly by pastor and author Dane Ortland. And I'm seizing in on this word gentle because I'm, I'm convinced we, we, we look over it and we even look down on it. I kind of want to be gentle. Like that's not, sometimes it's not a character trait that, that gets much play in our modern cultural moment. It's bad to be gentle, right? You'll get taken advantage of if you're gentle, y'all. Did Jesus ever get taken advantage of? Okay, so this f title comes from Matthew eleven twenty nine. This is Jesus describing himself. This is an important verse for our church. We literally have it on the wall. <laughs> it's right there. You see it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus describing himself and inviting us into a different kind of transforming relationship. And Dane Ortland has written a book where he's zeroing in on these ideas of Jesus' self-description of himself as gentle and lowly. And here is the first place in the book where, where Dane Ortland describes what he thinks Jesus means when he describes himself as gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Open arms. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be gentle like that? Don't you want the body of Christ to be like that? And if we were this way all the time, wouldn't the body of Christ be one? Wouldn't we be united? The body of Christ needs oneness. And again, I know how hard this is. I know that there are important conversations to have about oneness and unity really needs to look like when the rubber meets the road. Like the question of, do I need to be best friends with every other Christian? Is that what what oneness looks like? Or we should spend some time pressing into the concepts of forgiveness, the concepts of reconciliation too. What does that look like? We're commanded towards those practices as well. How do those practices relate to our oneness? All of these questions matter. We could add to the list too. There are not easy, quick answers to any of this because this is hard, grueling, sweaty work. It's difficult. Living as one in the body with people that are so different from us means inevitable tension. It does. But I keep wondering, how can we move forward? How can we walk, as Paul commands us, how can we walk forward together with, yes, tension, but maybe without as much animosity? How can we remain one? Well, we can walk the path with humility, with gentleness, with open arms, with patience. We can walk the path bearing with one another in love because, church, this matters. I think it's the central unifying theme of this entire letter, unity, unity in Christ. It matters. The body needs oneness. The body of Christ needs oneness, but that's not all. No, the body of Christ also needs teamwork. It needs oneness, but it also needs teamwork. The body of Christ also needs teamwork. One of the aspects across all of Paul's writing that I find most brilliant about him is his unbelievable ability to look around the corner and see what disagreements or questions are going to arise based on his teaching. I think his ability to anticipate and call attention to what questions are going to come up I think this is masterful from the Apostle Paul. So, so here, at the beginning of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, he's just reemphasized again, over and over and over and over again, in this letter, the need for unity, the need for oneness. And then it's almost as if he goes, okay, boy, I've really hammered that point home. <laughs> like, I had the nail, and I had the hammer, and I just kept hammering, hammering, hammering. I think they're going to get it. I hope they're going to get it. Now, what potential problems might arise if they take me as seriously as I want them to take me about how much unity and oneness matters. It's almost like that's 
what's happening in his head. And so that's where he goes next in verses 7 through 11. And we're going to look at those verses again here in a moment. But, but a quick high-level summary of the corrective that Paul is offering to the anticipated questions, I think it's this. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Or to use our oneness language, oneness is not sameness. Oneness is not sameness. So let's take another look at a couple of these verses, and I think we'll see this concept. Unity is not uniformity. Oneness is not sameness. I think we'll see these in these verses. And I'm going to borrow from the message paraphrase, uh, the message translation. It's Eugene Peterson's brilliant paraphrase of the Bible. I think he really captures the sense of verses 6 through 8 in a helpful manner, and this includes the Old Testament quote. If you've noticed that in your Bibles, uh, there's a part of this section that's bumped out. Uh, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, and let's, let's read how Peterson translates. He says, everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. I love that. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness, but, but, but that doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Don't do that. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. The text for this is, he climbed the high mountain, he captured the enemy, and he seized the booty. I love that. He handed it all out in gifts to his people. I love this. I love especially how Peterson translates the start of verse 7. Oneness doesn't mean that you should all look and speak and act the same. Yes, the body of Christ needs oneness. It is a point that the Apostle Paul and me will not stop talking about. But the body of Christ also needs teamwork. Also needs teamwork. Teamwork. I'm sure you noticed, right, that Paul grounds this idea of teamwork in the truth that each member of Christ's body, did you notice this, has been given what? Has been given a gift. Has been given a gift. Out of the overflow of Jesus' generosity, the body of Christ is gifted. We are gifted. And listen, I just have to say, I've only been part of this body here for, for four months. I started as campus pastor on uh, June 1st. Today is October 2nd, so four months, right? Not a lot of time for me to learn all of you, and yet I, that's been my goal and aim is to learn and, 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 do a, and journey with each of you and learn your stories. And, and this is what I've noticed as we've done that together in just four short months. This is a gifted room. I look out at each and every one of you, and I see gifted people. I see such strong evidence of what Paul is talking about here, that Christ won the war. He had a bunch of treasure, a bunch of booty, <laughs> as Peterson says, and he went up to his rightful place as the conquering hero, but instead of hoarding those gifts, what did he do? He gave them back out to his people, and I look out at every single one of you, and I see gifted, gifted followers of Jesus. I have been blessed. We have been blessed by your incredible gifts. Blessed by the fact that you're not only a gifted body, but that you also put those gifts into play, so to speak. You get onto the field with your gifts and you function well as a part of the team. This metaphor makes sense, right? Like this is not Paul's metaphor. 
the Apostle Paul's metaphor, this is my metaphor, that teamwork, the game, right? We're playing the game together, teamwork. The body of Christ need teamwork. We're all gifted for the game in different ways. You all are gifted. I promise you you're gifted. And we're gifted to, to play on the field, to play in the game in different ways. And the body of Christ works best when we are all playing our ideal positions, our ideal positions as part of the team, ideal positions. Let's pause for a moment on that phrase, the ideal positions that allow you to play well as a part of the team. This, I actually want a show of hands with this question, okay? So go ahead and get ready. I know it's a little different. I want you to raise your hand. If you have missed having Harrison Butker as our kicker the last couple of weeks, actually go ahead, right? Okay? All right? Amen and amen, right? Okay, now, but I also have to say that it was pretty incredible how safety Justin Reed stepped in and stepped up in the game against the Cardinals. Did you hear the, the important word? One of our safeties stepped up and stepped in after Butker got hurt in the game against the Cardinals. NFL teams, they only carry one kicker on their roster at a time, so when one gets hurt and can't play in the rest of the game, someone else has to step in, step up, and try to play, and they're not playing in their what? ideal position, right? And Justin Reed did a really good job, like so many touchbacks after our touchdowns, right? Like he did an awesome job for a safety. Like, you know what, you know what I mean? And the Chiefs were like, well, it's probably not tenable to have one of our safeties also be our kicker. So what did they do? They went out and they signed another kicker before the next game because it is vital for a football team that the players play in their ideal positions, same thing for us. Why would the body of Christ be any different? We must find and play on the field, in the game, as part of the team, in our ideal position. So the question is, how are you gifted? How are you gifted? I can, I can tell you, for many of you, because I've gotten to know you, right? How are you gifted? The people that know you best can tell you because they know you best. How are you gifted, and are you putting those gifts into play are you playing for the team in your ideal position? A couple of verses down uh, in this passage in verse 11, Paul throws out a list of a few gifts that are present in the body. Let's take another look at verse 11 here. And he gave, notice that, he gave, this is a connection back with what Paul says Jesus does in verse 7. He's giving, he's generously giving, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So here's a list of some gifts but at a higher level than by going through each one of these gifts listed in the verse, what we should see first is that each of these gifts in this part of Paul's writings has something to do with leadership in the church, right? You got apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Uh, Ashley's translation for shepherds said pastors. All of these gifts that Paul's describing in Ephesians 4.11, they have something to do with leadership in the church. And, and you'd almost expect Paul to dive in and, and talk about each of the nuances of each of these different leadership positions, but he doesn't. He treats them in this section as a collective whole, and instead what he does in verse 12 is he gives them their collective job description. You tracking with me, right? What is the collective job description of leaders in the church? What is the collective job description of leaders in the church? And let's add verse 12. Let's see what he says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, verse 12, the collective job description. Their job description is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, saints freaks you out a little bit, doesn't it? You're like, well, I'm not Mother Teresa, so I'm out. Like, we hear the word saint, and we think it doesn't describe us. No, no. This is anyone who is a follower of Jesus by the grace of Jesus. A saint is anyone who is a follower of Jesus by the grace of Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus by the grace of Jesus, congratulations, you're a saint. You see? So to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I love this. I might say it this way. The work of the leaders of the church is to get everyone else ready to work. The work of the leaders of the church is to get everyone else ready to work. Or let's add, right, let's add in the, the, the work of the leaders in the church is to get everyone else ready to serve, right? In other words, following Jesus as a member of his body is not a spectator sport. It is not something that just the pastors, that just the apostles, that just the evangelists do. The body of Christ needs teamwork from all of its members, Every single one of you, every single one of us. Again, I say, you all, every single one of you is immensely gifted, immensely gifted, and you have got to find your ideal position, get onto the field and play. And it's my job and the job of the other church leaders to help you do that. How does Paul say it? It's my job to equip you to do that, to equip you to do that, to equip you for the work of ministry. That also might throw us off. Saint might throw us off, and the work of ministry might throw us off. We cannot be tripped up by that phrase, because you might think, well, God hasn't called me into ministry, so I guess Ephesians 4.12 isn't for me. I'm not a saint, and I haven't been called into ministry, so this isn't about me, but it is, because saint is anyone who is a follower of Jesus by the grace of Jesus, and work of ministry is so much broader than we might think it is. Work of ministry. Gosh, we need to really make sure we're talking about that idea of ministry in accurate ways. Because too often we say, oh, no, yeah, I haven't been called into ministry. You've been called into ministry, Paul, but I haven't. At a root level, the word ministry is about service. And we use the word that way, don't we? You've said this, you've heard this. We said, that person, what did they do? They really, they ministered to me. They ministered to me. When we use or hear the word that way, what do we mean? We mean they served us. So, so equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here's a, a better, more accurate way to drive that home towards Paul's point. I, as the church leader, am supposed to get all of us, all followers of Jesus, ready to serve. That's Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. The church leader's job is to get every single one of us that is following Jesus ready to serve, to serve. And this is not just serve on one of our Sunday morning teams. This is not just serve with Prairie Point. It is that, but it's more than that too. It's serving in your family. It's serving in your job. It's serving in your friendships and relationships. Students, it's serving the students that are next to your lockers in your school. It's ser serving. My job as a church leader is to get you all, us all, the body ready, every follower of Jesus ready to serve. That is what's happening here, right? 
We need to start serving one another in the body. We need to start serving literally the whole world. This is God's design. We see this over and over and over again. He blesses us to what? Be a blessing. He gifts us so that we can what? Give gifts to others. He, he serves us in Christ so that we can what? Then go and serve others, all others. Church, the game's underway. The game's already happening. It is going on right now. The only question is whether or not you're on the team and whether or not you're serving in your ideal position. That's it. The game's happening. We're not waiting for the game. We're not in the locker room. We are on the field. The game is already happening. The body of Christ needs teamwork. We need you. We can't do it without you. The body of Christ needs teamwork. And do you know what happens when we get on the field and start serving together? I've seen this over and over and over again. Do you know what happens? When the body of Christ is experiencing unified oneness, and when the body of Christ is playing together as a coherent team, playing the game with excellence, what happens is we start growing together. We start maturing together, and that is our third and final need this morning that we're going to look at briefly. The body of Christ needs oneness, the body of Christ needs teamwork, but the body of Christ also needs to mature together. The body of Christ needs to mature together. The body of Christ needs to grow together. We're going to add it all back in. Follow along with me one more time. See how all of this trends towards growth and maturity. Verses 11 and 12, we've taken a close look at them, but we're adding in verses 13 through 16, the end, and see how all of this crescendos towards growth, crescendos towards maturity. And, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up. Uh-oh, there's growth, there's maturity. For the building up of the body of Christ until when? Well, until we all attain to the what? The unity of the faith. There's the unity idea again, okay? And of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we all attain to mature manhood, to mature adulthood. There's growth, there's maturity. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I have to stop. I love it too much. We're growing up, we're maturing up. How high are we growing? What's the stature? When do we stop? What's the measure? The measure of the fullness of Christ. Like everybody look up, <laughs> right? Like that's how high we're growing. That's how much we're maturing. The stature of the growth that we're aiming for is measured by the fullness of Christ. Look up at the high of heavens, you're not going to see the matureness of the fullness of Christ. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, rather truthing in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Are you seeing how all this fits together? I love it. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see it? We need oneness. We need teamwork. But we also need to mature and grow together. We need oneness. We need teamwork. We need to mature and grow together. We must not remain stagnant. We must grow. We must mature. 
And do you notice how all of these ideas coalesce and synergize with each other? We've talked about oneness today, we've talked about teamwork today, and we've talked about growth and maturity to get today. Do you see how they all play together? Okay, so we're growing up and we're maturing. That nothing will make us do that more than serving together as a team. How can you hate someone that you're sweating alongside? You probably can. But do you know what I mean? Like, do you get the point? The point is, if you're actually serving on the team, if you're getting in there and getting your hands dirty, oh man, you're going to grow up. And you're going to become one with that person that's doing that next to you. And here's the other piece of it. Do you know the people that serve the most in the body of Christ? Do you know the people that are most eager to jump in and then not have any credit given towards them? It's the ones who are most mature. It's the people who have been following Jesus the longest that are quickest to raise their hands and say, how can I help? How can I serve? No, you better not give me any credit, (laughs) right? The mature followers of Jesus are the ones that are fastest to raise their hand and say, put me into the field wherever wherever I'm needed. I just want to serve. I just want to help. Do not give me credit. I just want to serve. I just want to help. Do you see how all these ideas, oneness, serving on a team, and maturity, all of them go together? And do you see as well, we're back to it here at the very beginning, do you see as well how they are just like Jesus? One of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels comes in Mark chapter 10. Jesus foretells his uh, coming death for a third time. So sit in that for a moment. He's, He's just been very clear with his disciples that the point of all of this is for him to go to the cross. I'm imagining that. How could that not be a solemn, somber moment? It's the middle of uh, Mark 10. And then immediately following James and John, the brothers, two of the twelve, immediately following Jesus' third time foretelling his death, his coming death, they go to Jesus and they angle for promotions. Seriously. Go look it up. Go read it. It's, it's astounding. Jesus has just foretold his death again, and that's the moment they choose to go to him and say, hey, Jesus, let us, let us grab you for a second we got a question for you. Grant James and John the places of honor, one to sit at your right and one to sit at your left. They're angling for promotions, and I cannot be too hard on them because I think I would have done the exact same thing. It's sort of a shrewd move from a human standpoint, right? The other disciples say so. They're in the text, Mark 10. It says, the other 10 found out, and they were indignant. They were jealous that James and John had such a great idea because the places of honor the right and the left of the king of the universe, that's a pretty good spot. And James and John had the idea first. So Jesus catches wind of the jealousy. He sees how much they're missing it, and he calls the 12 together, and this is what he says. Mark 10, 45. This is an important moment. And this is what he says. Even the Son of Man, that's me, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in fact, to give his life as a ransom for many. The king of the universe, the creator of the universe, if anyone had the right to raise their hand and say, hey, y'all, you can serve me, it was Jesus. And yet he comes and says, for not even the Son of Man, not even the creator of the universe, not even the king of the universe, not even me, 
is here to be served. That is not what this is about. Not even the Son of Man came to be served, but instead to serve. And in fact, to give his life as a ransom to many. This is Jesus and friends, church. We are his body. Do we look like that? Do we look like that? The body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. So do we look like Jesus? Are we one? Are we unified? Are we on the field playing our ideal positions together? Are we growing together? Are we maturing together? Are we serving together? Does our body look like Jesus? I hope so. I think so. Most of the time. I pray so. The body of Christ needs to look like Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, may this be true of us. Oh, goodness. May this be true of us. May our body here at Christ Community Shawnee, at Christ Community more broadly, Lord, across our five campuses, may we look like Jesus. May we be one. May we be unified. May we serve with eagerness as members of the team in our ideal positions, and may we grow and mature together. Oh. Thank you for Jesus' model. Thank you for his sacrificial service to us. Thank you for his sacrificial life, that he gave up his life to death so that when we fall short, he can fill the gap. We're so grateful for that, Lord, and we pray that we would never stop walking towards this goal of unity, teamwork, and maturity. In Jesus' name and by the power of his spirit, we pray. Amen.